Morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. We are today beginning a, a four-part message series based on a question that we, we often ask, and the question is this, do I have enough? Particularly, do I have enough money? Now, for some, it's do I have enough money for rent this month? For others, it's do I have enough to move from a two-bedroom to a three-bedroom apartment? Or do I have enough money for a down payment uh, so I can buy a house or a condo uh, in this area? Or do I have enough money to buy a nicer house or a bigger house or maybe a second house so I can rent one out? And if you own or lead a business, you're trying to answer this question all the time. Do I have enough money to maybe make payroll uh, if things are really tight? Or do I have enough money to buy some additional equipment and so we can uh, expand in this area? Can we hire more workers? Can I... Uh, give my workers more benefits? Can I you know, increase the wages of my employees? You're always asking these questions of, do, well, do we have enough to do that? Now, for me and uh, many of you, the closer we get to our 60s, <coughs> the more we wonder if um, we're going to eventually have enough to retire on or maybe enough to handle you know, long-term care. Who knows what's going to happen medically? I mean, I, I really don't want to be a burden to my family, So, but I don't know if I'm going to have enough. Now, it used to be that if you had a million dollars, it was considered to be enough to retire on. But, you know, amazingly, that's no longer considered to be enough. Well, how much is? Nobody knows. Pretty much just more. You need more. Now, we ask the enough question, honestly, because we really do need money to survive in this life. We need food, and we need shelter, and we need clothing and other things. And The fact is, we want to do more, of course, than just survive. We want a measure of enjoyment in this life, and that's a good thing, and that's fine. But that takes a certain amount of money. And if we're not careful, this do-I-have-enough question can dominate our life and distract us from the questions that turn out to really uh, bring us joy, not only in this life, but in the one to come. Questions like, am I loving others enough, or am I serving enough? Or am I learning enough about God? Or am I talking enough about God with those that God has put in my life? Or even am I sleeping enough? So do I have enough money is an important question, but it's really not the most important question. I I would venture to say I don't even think it's in the top 10 of the most important questions that you can ask. But for most people, it turns out to be the number one question. And that makes for a very stressful life. And so in this four-week series, I want to share with you a a very basic plan for answering this enough question about money. And if you follow this plan, if you follow God's plan on on how he's designed money to operate, then it's going to free you up to focus on the bigger and even more important enough questions in life. Here's the theme verse for this series. It's found in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. That's a very amazing statement. What it's saying is it's not the amount of money that we have that answers the do I have enough question. It's the relationship that we have with money that answers the enough question. In other words, if money shifts from something that we use to something that we love, then what we really have done is we've just gotten on a treadmill the money treadmill, and, and it's going to keep going, and it's going to keep ramping up and get faster and faster and faster, and we will never get off. We'll never arrive. It looks like we're climbing, but 
we're just doing this. We'll not be able to keep up, and we won't have enough. So the best money question that we really can't answer, the most important question when it comes to money, is not, well, do I have enough money, but do I love money? You can love money and have a lot of it, and you can love money and have hardly any of it. So how can you tell if you love money? Well, don't trust yourself on that one. You may say, oh, I don't love money, but the evidence may show different. So I want to give you three tests this morning for you to take. This is just for your evaluation, for you to evaluate your own heart as objectively as you possibly can and answer this question, do I, do I love money? That's the most important question. Here's test number one, your financial position. What is your financial position? Now, we usually talk about uh, financial position from the standpoint of how does your money line up with your goals? That's the primary question whenever someone says, well, are you in a good financial position or a poor financial position? That's the question. How does your money line up with your goals? Now, there's a lot of ways that you can assess that question. In fact, I went on the Wells Fargo website this week, and they've got a lot of pretty good tools on their website for answering this question. Tools that will help you determine what your debt-to-income ratio is or how much emergency savings you should have set aside and what your retirement contributions should be. And all of those get around that question of, well, does my money line up with my goals? Because this is the way it works. You know, up here are you, and down here is your goals, and in between you and your goals is money. You need your money to line up in order to accomplish your goals. So the key question is, is your money positioned to accomplish the goals that you've set? For example, let's say you plan to retire. But your money isn't aligned. Your, your money's kind of not lined up. It's, you know, it's off over here. In other words, your spending patterns, your investment patterns, your saving patterns are not really going to make it possible for you to retire. Well, if that's the case, then you're in a bad financial position. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you want to retire. If you're not lined up to retire, if the financial position isn't lined up, it, you can't. Financially, you can't do it. But it turns out there are more than just three elements that need to line up financially in order to be in a good financial position. And the reason is because you and I are not at the top of this lineup. God is at the top of this lineup. And that fundamentally changes the question. The question moves from how does your money line up with your goals to how do you line up with God's goals? That becomes the big question. You see, before it was just you and your goals with money in the middle, just kind of the three. But now it's God at the top and his goals at the bottom with you and your money in between. What that means is the key alignment question now moves up one position from money to you. The reason that's true is because what's upline affects everything that's downline. So in other words, if you're not aligned with God, then it doesn't matter if your finances are aligned with your goals, your financial position is off. In other words, you will not get the results out of life that you want because God is at the top and not you. You may line your finances up with your goals, but if it's out of line with God and his goals, you're not going to be satisfied. It's like the difference between being an owner and being an employee. Owning the company and working for a company. Now, if you own a business, well, you're at the top of the financial decision-making ladder. 
But if you're an employee, the money isn't yours to do with as you please. You have to check in with your boss before you can spend the company's money. Now, you may be in a supervisory position, and you may have a budget that's allotted to you to use within a certain framework, but you need to operate within that framework. And if you don't, you're out of line. The financial position that you're operating in is, is out of line. You have to check in to before you can spend this money. It's not your money. And this is the way it is with our money. turns out our stuff really isn't ours. God is above us. It's his. So why is our name on it then? Well, it's because that reflects the position that God has given us. In a sense, he has allocated this part of his resources to you. It's got your name on it. Now, the official title of this position is steward. It's the position of a manager, or as it was sometimes called in Jesus' day, a trusted servant. Many of the stories that Jesus tells of parables about money involve an owner and a steward or a trusted servant to reflect this lineup, the fact that it's God and then us and then the money under us and then God's goal. And this is one of the things that Jesus says over and over again in these parables. Here's an example of it, Matthew 24, verses 45 through 46. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Right now, it appears to be an optional thing to handle our money God's way. It seems like it's just ours. But what this is saying is there's going to be a day when it will be a good thing for the servant whose master finds him doing what he wanted them to do with the money. You see, right now, when you and I make our financial decisions, maybe you do your finances weekly or maybe monthly, uh, God's not sitting next to you as you're on your computer or as you're addressing your financial decisions. He's not looking over your expenditures for the month and saying, now, help me understand that one. What was that about? Now, he, He's invisible. It is like in the stories Jesus told, it's the owner went away on a long trip and he was gone longer than anybody expected. But that doesn't change the fact that he's still the owner. And there will be a day when he does show up visibly and he does say, what, what happened there? What, what about this? And on that day, this is a huge understatement, it will be a good thing. Now, it'll be a really important thing for that servant for you, for me, whose master finds him doing what he wanted them to do with the resources that he'd given. Now, there's a tremendous amount of peace that comes with understanding this financial position that we have. There's a lot of peace that comes with being a steward and not an owner. You know, I got a part to be, I got a chance to be in the 80s a part of a business startup. And if you've ever been a part of a new business startup, well, you, you know what kind of stress that is. I mean, it's just really a lot of work and a lot of strain to get something new off the ground in the business world. But you know, at the end of a very long and stressful day, I could go home knowing that I had done my job. But the owner, well, he, he didn't sleep as well as me because he's, he's the owner. I could set it aside more easily than the owner could. 
And this is what happens when we handle our money apart from God. It, there's just a lot of stress that comes with that. I mean, there's stress that comes with managing, but it's nothing like being the CEO. That there's no peace in promoting yourself to the top position. You do get to call all the shots independently, but with that comes all of the pressure. So the financial position question really is, are your financial decisions made independently? Do you just kind of do whatever you think is best? If you're married, maybe what your spouse agrees with? Is God a factor in that at all? Is there a sense, even though he's invisible, that you turn to him and say, well, God, what do you think I should do? How would you want me to handle this? What decision would you want? Is that a part of the decision-making process, or is it just an independent decision? If it is just an independent decision, then there is a very good chance that you love money. And what that means is you're on a treadmill that will not stop. It'll just keep going. Test number two is your financial priorities. First, your financial position. Now, test number two is what's your financial priorities? What's most important to you? And then next, and then next. Now, what happens when you don't have enough money to do everything you'd like to do? Well, you have to figure out what's more important than something else. You have to determine your financial priorities. Now, for example, an extreme example of this would be, you know, you wanted, you wanted to go on a nice vacation to Hawaii, but you don't have enough money for groceries. Well, what's more important? Well, eating. You know, you, you don't want to go to Hawaii and be sitting on the beach just having nothing to eat. That's not fun. So eating comes before a nice trip to Hawaii. Nothing wrong going to Hawaii, but if you don't have the money, you don't go to Hawaii. Or paying the rent. That's more important than going out to eat in restaurants. Now, going out to eat is a lot of fun, but if you're having a hard time coming over the mortgage and the rent, well, you just don't go out to eat that much. You know, if you're... If you bought your first house, you're probably not, your budget for eating out has probably gone down because you've decided, you know what, getting into a house is more important than our entertainment category. We do this kind of thing all the time. So let me simplify the list of financial priorities by boiling all of the things that you can do with your money down to the three most basic categories. Everything you can do with your money will fit into one of these three categories. Number one, you can spend it. Number two, you can save it. I'll also include investing in that. Saving and investing. Number three, you can give it. You can give it away. That's all you can do with your money. One of those three. Now, spending goes to the present. Whenever you spend, some, spend something, that's for now. In other words, this afternoon you go to Starbucks and get a coffee. You have just spent, what, five, six bucks? And that five or six bucks is gone. And after you drink the coffee, it's gone. That's the present. Just like this minute, we'll be gone in just a minute, and we'll never see it again. That's what spending does. It, it goes for the present. You can save it. Saving goes to the future, your future. Giving also goes to the future, but not your future. It goes to another future. So what's number one of these three in your heart? What's naturally number one in our priority list? Spending, right? I mean, we're Americans. We spend. Now, the word for this is lifestyle. What we spend determines our lifestyle. If you're driving a nicer car, living in a nicer house, 
you are spending more. Therefore, you have a higher lifestyle. And that requires spending. Now, our whole economy is based on spending. So what that means is we are continually encouraged to upgrade our lifestyle. Now, that's not just not a thought out there. That we literally are bombarded with the reasons why we need to upgrade our lifestyle. Why what we have is not enough and we need more. I mean, this is President's Day weekend. I've gotten four, five things in the mail from the local car dealers telling me that my car is now worth enough money that I can turn it in and without any down payment, I can get a new car. I just bought this car from one of these dealers like 16 months ago. <laughs> Why would I turn it in? Well, the new models have got some more technology. I test drove a Tesla with a friend the other day, not because I'm thinking of buying one, but I was tagging along. And we test drove this autopilot feature. I don't know if you've ever tried this thing. Oh, man. <laughs> you got to get me one of those. That is <laughs> in freeway traffic. You just put on autopilot, literally off the hands, off the pedals, and it does it. I mean, it's amazing. Starting at $95,000. <laughs> so we are encouraged to continually upgrade our lifestyle. But what does the CEO say? What does what the owner, what, what does God say is number one? It's not spending. You know what it is? It's giving. Giving is number one. Now, it won't be the highest in the percentage of your money, what it goes to, but it is the highest priority. It is the first and more, most important financial decision that we make. It is to be done before the other two. Why? Why is giving such a focus and God's top priority? It's because it has the power to break our love for money. Ecclesiastes 5.10, again, what does it say? Whoever loves money never has money enough. So we've got to figure out how to stop loving money. We will naturally have money unless we do something about it. Giving breaks the continual desire for more. Why? Because it goes in the exact opposite direction of more. I mean, if you're heading this direction, you want more and more and more, and you decide to give, you've just taken a few financial steps back in what you can spend, right? So if you love money, you don't want to give any of it away. So giving is the one thing that cuts the nerve of our love for money. But in order to cut that nerve, we need to give enough to actually impact our lifestyle, to alter our lifestyle, to change our spending patterns. Otherwise, lifestyle and spending will rule. We'll always be king. We'll always be number one. You see, a one-time gift, even if it's a very large and substantial gift, will not dethrone spending from the top position. The reason is because we don't just make one spending decision. We spend every month and pretty much every day. So the giving needs to become a lifestyle just like the spending is. If you're making monthly spending decisions, but 
only one giving decision a year, spending is going to dominate your heart. The challenge is that we need to spend money every month, but how often do we need to give money? Never. Right? I mean, if, if you don't give anything this year, what's going to happen to your finances? Nothing. If you don't spend enough this year, if you don't pay your mortgage, you don't pay your rent, you're going to have some immediate consequences. But nothing's going to happen if you don't give. And if giving never becomes an ongoing priority, lifestyle will continue to rule. You see, the interesting thing about lifestyles is lifestyles float. They naturally rise with the tide of our income. Giving doesn't, saving doesn't, spending does. I mean, we've all experienced this. Your income goes up. What's your first thought? All right, I get to give more. <laughs> never. That, that's never been my first thought. How about, oh, I get to save more. You know, if you're old enough to be through a few economic downturns, you may think that. But almost always it's like, oh, I get the new piece of technology. I can at least test drive another Tesla. I mean, whatever it is, that's the first thought. Do I have enough to get what I want? You see, if we were in charge of our money, life-altering giving would make absolutely no sense to us. I mean, why? It only makes sense if God really is CEO. That's why the, the position question comes first before the priorities question. Who's in charge? What are the priorities? Now, my guess is that most of you agree with the importance of giving. I mean, you, you probably want to give. But you might feel like, well, I can't right now. And why? Well, the reason is you've made some legacy lifestyle decisions. You know what that means? The kind of decisions that come with payments. And now you're stuck. I mean, you can't afford to give. So the question then if you're in that position, is, well, how do you get unstuck? What makes sense to most people is, well, i got to focus first on paying off this lifestyle choice that I made two, three years ago. Then when I can afford it, well, then I'm going to start giving, and then I'll start saving. But first, I've got to address this spending problem. The problem with that approach is I, I've almost never seen that work. And the reason is because you don't get out of a hole that you've dug by using the same shovel that you dug it with. You, you can't work the problem with the exact same set of priorities that caused the problem. You need God's help to get out of that hole. And God will not help until you line up things with him. And that starts at the top of God's priority list, which is giving. So... How do you do that? Well, lifestyle level giving always requires three components. Here are the three. First, it's thoughtful. If you're going to give at a level that's going to impact lifestyle and dethrone spending, it's going to have to be thoughtful, not emotional giving. Here's what we read in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, in our culture, we see the word heart and we think emotion. Heart and emotion 
means the same thing in our culture, but not in the Bible. In the Bible, the heart is the decision-making, decision-making center of who we are. That's why it says, decide in your heart to give. Not feel in your heart to give, but decide in your heart to give. Not when you feel bad enough to give or excited enough to give. You see, whenever we give out of guilt or because our emotions are compelling us in some way to give, what that does at the most is it stretches our generosity for a moment. It's kind of like stretching a rubber band. You, You can stretch a rubber band pretty far. I mean, if you don't have a pattern of giving, you might feel bad enough at one point or motivated at one point to really stretch the giving rubber band. But if that's just kind of the one thing you do, what happens after that? Well, when you let go of the rubber band, when the pressure's off, when the emotions go, what happens? It goes right back to exactly the way it was. And that's not going to change your heart. It's not going to change my heart. Emotional giving isn't really a gift. It's an exchange. You're getting something for it emotionally. So in exchange for the gift, you get to feel better about yourself. You get to feel not so guilty. Or you get to feel more excited or better about yourself. But at the core, it's still the whole purpose of the gift was you, right? That's not giving. Giving that pleases God is not what you feel in the moment, but what you've decided in advance to give. So if you're kind of feeling bad about your giving and you decide, you know what, I'm going to write a big check when that offering bucket comes around. Don't. Don't do it. God's after your heart. He doesn't want you to just stretch the rubber band and go right back to where you were. Think about it. And then decide. God wants a cheerful giver. Again, we see cheerful, and we think immediately someone that's just like they're writing checks. They're just giddy. You know, this is so exciting, you know. No. The the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and the the Greek word here for cheerful literally means readiness of mind to do good. It's the orientation, of again, of your mind. You're ready to do this. So lifestyle level giving is, first of all, thoughtful. Secondly, it's proportional giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, we read this. The Apostle Paul, first century church planner, says, Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. He's writing the church in Corinth. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside, set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, what was going on here is the church in Jerusalem was undergoing some pretty severe persecution. There's tremendous needs. And so a number of the churches that had just recently been started by Paul were concerned about their fellow Christians in Jerusalem, and they decided that we're going to pool some money together, and as Paul comes through, as he visits us, we're going to give him this money, and then when he heads back to Jerusalem, then he can deliver the help to them. So Paul knows this is going on, and he writes in this letter in advance of him showing up, and he's concerned that he doesn't want this to be some big emotional deal when he arrives. It's not like some fundraising thing where he's like trying to get everyone to cry and feel really bad and give more money. No, he reminds them of the giving pattern that's found throughout the Bible. He says, uh, you need to give in keeping with your income. It needs to be a, a percentage of your income. The focus is on percentage of the gift relative to your income, not the amount of the gift. Why? Why would that be the focus in the pages of the Bible? It's because our heart is moved by the percentage that we give, not the amount that we give. So, for example, which gift is larger, $1,000 or two pennies? 
$1,000. So you would think that $1,000 would move someone's heart much more than two pennies, but you'd be wrong. This is why Jesus, standing at the temple in his day, watching individuals give multiple thousands of dollars in today's dollars value gift, is suddenly sits forward and notices a widow who gives two pennies. He says, you know, that's the largest gift I've ever seen anyone give. Two pennies? Jesus, really? It's not the amount. It's the percentage. It was all she had. It was a 100% gift. We look at the amount of gift, but God looks at the heart. And that's a percentage question. See, the only way that giving can become number one in our financial priority list is if the percentage is high enough to really challenge our lifestyle. And that'll be different amounts for different people. You know, for some, boy, a $1,000 gift would really challenge your lifestyle. For some, it might take $10,000 to challenge your lifestyle. For some, it may be $100,000 or more over the course of a year. And that's why the third component of lifestyle-level giving is its threshold giving. The question is, how much giving, what percentage is enough to challenge your love for money and my love for money? What percentage should we give? Well, 100%? Like the widow Jesus commented on? Is that what Jesus was saying? No, he never commands that. That was pretty unusual. I mean, Jesus said, I've never seen this. I mean, honestly, we, if that became our pattern, we couldn't survive on that. Well, how about 1%? Well, that's good. But let's be honest. Would that challenge your lifestyle? at all? I mean, if you gave 1%, you might not want to, but would you have to change much to do that? Probably not. Now, when it comes to money, especially giving money, well, we tend to play a lot of games with our mind. So if God just said, you decide how much, I mean, we'd be all over the map on that. So God took all the guesswork out of the how much question and established a giving percentage threshold for everyone, no matter their circumstance. It's called a tithe which literally means tenth. Giving 10% of our income back to God is the giving threshold that God establishes in the Bible. It's mentioned throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. One of the earlier times it's mentioned is in the uh, Old Testament book of Leviticus, 2730. This is what it says. Tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now, most of the people that this was written to was written during a time when agriculture was the dominant economy, so people didn't really carry around money. All of their resources were fruit from the trees and grain from the land, so they would tithe that. Now, I call this giving threshold giving because thresholds are very clear. Now, when you walked into this room today, you crossed a threshold to get in this room. What that means is in just one moment, you went from outside to inside. You crossed the threshold. And it's the same with tithing. You know, if, if you give 5%, if you give 9%, that's great. That's actually pretty amazing. But it's still outside God's will on the matter of giving. I mean, the average in America is 2% giving. But of course, if you've decided to follow Christ... The Bible is your guide in life, not what everyone else does or what the culture thinks and what they're doing. You know, and some of what God commands us to do involves quite a bit of complexity. 
for example, the command to love, that's pretty complex. It's very easy to say. It's very easy to nod your head to and say, I, I really need you to love more. But boy, when you get in the trenches of loving real people, that can get complex. And that's why we, if you were with us this last fall, we, we spent most of the time this last fall talking about the complexity of love. How do you love difficult people? We started that in September. And then over Christmas, that, how do you forgive? You can't love if you're not willing to forgive. Now that's, depending on how you've been wronged and how people are treating you, that's, that's, that can get pretty complex and pretty tough. But tithing is not one of those complex commands. I mean, it's how much did you make last year? Multiply that by 10%, that's the tithe. You're either inside or outside of that. And that's for you to know, no one else. But it's very clear. Now, if you give more than 10%, the Bible calls that an offering. There's two categories, tithes and offerings. Tithes are not optional. Offerings, those are optional. Now, why 10%? Okay, you ready for the answer? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I have a guess, though. My guess is because 10% requires you to realign your goals, your financial goals. It, it requires you to take a big whack at spending. Now, I know this out of my own life personally. And I know this in dealing with a lot of different people who have wrestled with these matters. I mean, if you're going to tithe, you're going to have to stop spending probably in a number of areas, or at least reduce it quite a bit. You're going to have to maybe stop saving as much. I mean, I've yet to meet a single person who hears about tithing and says, oh, that's why I always have an extra 10% laying around at the end of the month. I never knew why. Now I know what it's for. No, no, no. It's like, oh, I can't afford it. That's the first response. It's like, well, not without addressing a lot of other things. And that's why. 1%, 2%, 3%, that's a tip. You know, we can do that and kind of keep rolling. But boy, once you start getting up and you, you get to 10%, that's a challenge. So if you're not tithing, and you yourself know, you don't need to tell anyone else, but you know. There is a high possibility that the real reason is, I mean, you've got all these, well, it's because of this, because, but let me just tell you probably what the real reason is. You love money. You love money. That's why. And the reason that's a problem is you'll never have enough. You're on a treadmill that is going to kill you. You'll never have enough. Test number three is your financial plan. To keep your priorities in line, you need a plan, not an intention. It's not enough for you to say, okay, God's at the top. I'm going to line up with giving and then saving and spending. That intention will, will last a week. You need a plan if it's going to actually become a part of your life. Proverbs 27.20 describes why. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. Death is never satisfied. Yesterday, in this room, we had two memorial services. The last one was for a young man who died from complications of flu while he was away at college. Now, I, I really would love it if I could say, you know what, those are the last 
memorial services that we're ever going to have in this room. But I know that's not true. You know that's not true. I don't know where the, who the next one is going to be, but I know there's a next one. Because death is never satisfied. Death never says, you know what? Enough death. No, it just keeps rolling. Same, truth, same is true of destruction. You know, I, I really wish that the shooting at the school in Florida was the last school shooting we'd ever hear about. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, I, like everyone, I'm, I'm so tired of hearing about these things and so grieved for the families that have to go through this stuff. But you know what I know? It's what you know. The next shooting is already being planned. We just don't know where. So if we're honest, we will be shocked and surprised about the location and the details, but we shouldn't be surprised about the destruction. This is a newer form of destruction in our culture, but destruction never says, you know, enough. Evil just keeps rolling. And it's saying the same thing is true with the human eyes. In other words, I wish I could be content. I really wish I could finally say, you know what? I don't need any more. I don't need anything else. I... <laughs> I've got everything and more that I could ever want. I'm done. But, you know, I'd, I'd be as foolish as someone saying, you know, there's, this is the last funeral ever we had here, and that was the last school shooting. It's like, no. Now, I think the way to solve contentment is getting enough. You know, I think if, if I could have enough, I'd be content. But our eyes are just like death and destruction. They are never satisfied. People who have twice what you have, they're not content either. They, like you, will always see something else that their eyes want. So the only way to control our desires is to have a predetermined financial plan that we stick to. You know what that's called? A budget. Oh, no. A budget? That's no fun. You see, if we don't have a plan, then it's just our desires trying to convince our brains why we really need that thing. And we know who wins that every time, right? If you really want something, you will get something eventually. You know, if your wife or your husband's opposed to it, you may, you may work on it for years, but eventually it will be purchased. Right? It will be. Because your eyes are never satisfied. You know, the English word contentment comes from a Latin word that means to contain. Isn't that fascinating? Even in our own, the etymology of our own words contains this knowledge. What this is saying is you won't be content until you build a fence for your desires and you contain them. That's what a budget is designed to do. It's a predetermined set of fences. In this area, this is how much we will spend and no more. In this area, this is how much we will spend and no more. So what's your plan? What's your budget? Now, it's for you to decide what the details are on that. But I would encourage you to decide before you go shopping. <laughs> you know, before you just click on to see, now, what are Amazon's great deals today? Have that decision made before you check that out. Definitely before you go to Costco. Have your mind made up <laughs> what the limit is before you start rolling out there with two carts rather than one. I mean, it's... 
It's going to happen. Now, God has filled in the first number. He said, give 10%. That's not open for negotiation. So let me give you a suggestion on the rest. It's called the 10-10-80 plan. This is not something I come up with. It's been around for a long time. Give 10%, save 10%, and then spend 80%. You know what the average American spends? 121%. It's much better than our government. I think it's now at 173%. We elect them. They're just a little bit worse than we are, collectively. So spending always rises to the top unless you give and save enough to change your lifestyle. Now, spending only 80% of your income, that's not the magic number, number that causes contentment. It's the spending limit that does. It's you telling your heart, here is the fence. Stop. Do not go past this. So what matters is that you've established a plan with a spending limit. Because the struggle is never, oh, I'm giving too much again. <laughs> nah, I've yet to hear that one. I have heard a few times, but it's pretty rare. You know what? I'm saving too much. Really? Aren't you odd? It's, <laughs> it almost never happens. It's always spending too much. That's always the problem. So if you don't have a plan... <clears throat> then there's no way to know if you're practicing contentment or not. You see, contentment isn't just a, a state that shows up on someone's face. You know, you're not going to wake up some morning and it's like, oh, you look content. <laughs> what happened? I don't know, I'm just content. No, spending is the indicator of contentment. If you are spending outside the borders of your budget, you are discontent. No matter what you feel like. You're discontent with the income God has given you. Now, it's okay to try to raise your income. But that is not going to solve your spending problem because your spending will just go up with it. So the two most powerful steps that you can take financially is number one, to start tithing, and number two, start living on a budget. So again, the big question this morning is, do you love money? Okay, that's, that's for you. Don't tell anyone else. If you're married, I dare you to have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't have a plan that contains your money, I will promise you, you will end up loving money if you don't already. Without a plan that tells money that you are the one in charge and not money, money will take over. Always does. So again, our theme verse, Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is just never satisfied with their income. So the best money question again to ask is not, do I have enough money, but do I love money? The answer to that question is not what you say it is, not what you feel it is, not what you know it should be, but it's what these three tests indicate it actually is. What is your financial position? Are you at the top of the financial decisions or is God? What are your financial priorities? Is spending or saving at the top and then saving at the top? And then you kind of give whatever's left over after you reach your lifestyle and your investing goals? Or do you tithe first? What's your financial plan? Do you have a detailed budget? And here's the key. Do you stick to it? Well, early on in our marriage, we came up with all kinds of budgets that were just ink on paper. 
We didn't stick to it. Now, if the answer is no to any of these three test questions, you probably love money. And more importantly, you'll never be satisfied. Now, the reason I say all this is, and please hear me on this, God is not after your money. He didn't come up with a tithe. It's like, you know, i got to raise some cash. <laughs> no, God is after your heart, not your money. The problem is the two are connected. Always have been. And God knows only he can satisfy you. Only he really is enough. And if you don't demote money, money will be your God. And money is not a God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how clear and direct your word is on this. Now, it's up to us to decide whether we're going to do it or not. Whether we're going to stay on the treadmill and manage its pace and its demands as best we can, or whether we're going to get off the treadmill and start aligning our finances based on what you say. God, you know where we are. You know our heart better than we do. Help us, first of all, to be honest about where we really are. If we really do love money, make that clear to us. And then move us to the point where we will act on that. And we will take these real tangible steps to dethrone spending from its top position. God, help us. What's at stake here is is not money, it's our hearts. Help us, we pray. And I pray that you use this series to, to help us really get back on track if we're off track, to get a plan if we don't have a plan, and to build contentment in the middle of a, a culture that is so discontent. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen.